Hey, it's John from Your Birding Story. Just a note before we begin, we've been planning the podcast for a hot minute now, and while we wish we could debut it under better circumstances, we also feel it's a great time to share these stories because as long as we can go outside, there are still birds to see and nature to enjoy, and the therapeutic reasons for birding are more relevant than ever. We hope that these stories may inspire you to start birding or pick it back up if you haven't done it in a while. And if you're already a birder, we look forward to getting your reaction to these stories from your fellow enthusiasts. The host of Your Birding Story is Tom Ferguson, an entrepreneur who has found balance in his life through birding. And our guest today for our very first episode is Paul Riss, who many of you may already know. Paul is currently in the midst of filming a documentary about birding with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and is on the board of directors for the American Birding Association. He is one of the premier award-winning creatives working in Canadian advertising today and has his own privately owned international ad agency called Round that services clients in Canada, the USA, and all over the world. Tom's already got Paul on the line. Let's get it going. Hey, how you doing today, Paul? I'm doing well, Tom. How are you? I'm doing all right, considering the circumstances. Life's going on. Yeah. You know what? I just keep birding. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm birding more because of coronavirus than less because, you know, I'm, my, my work interactions are a lot smaller. So I'm just, you know, spending time out there looking at birds doing meetings from park benches. Yeah, I mean, I just got back from Honduras on Sunday, so I was down there when this stuff really started to hit, but now I'm back to the real world, but I plan on doing a little birding this weekend myself. So I think you and I were introduced by people, and I think probably from both sides, they said, oh yeah, you're going to love Paul, and probably told you something the same about me because there's some similarities with us. You want to tell a little bit about how we did come together? Yeah, I just got an email from the producer of the documentary that we're shooting with CBC. Um, working title is Rare Bird Alert, but these kind of things change a lot. So who knows what it will be called. But anyway, they, they sent me a link to a video where you gave a somewhat impassioned speech about how birding saved your life. And I saw a lot of similarities to the way you handled your problems and the way that you looked at things and the way that I do. And after watching that video and seeing, okay, well, this guy's got tattoos all over himself and seems like a cool dude, I think that we'll get along real well. And we're both birders, so that is always the great equalizer. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was, you know, we were talking where, you know, when I was on that show with you for that little segment, it was pretty obvious that we come from kind of the same places in a lot of ways. And that actually helped, you know, cement the idea that, yeah, I do like this guy. And I'm really interested in your birding story. And that's kind of why I brought you here to kind of share that. Would you like to share your birding story with us here? Yeah, I guess I have two kind of birding stories to talk about. Um, my, my first one is how I really got into it. And then there was that hiatus and then how I got back into it. So I think it's just a typical 70s parenting situation where my mom and dad were kind of looking for ways that my dad would be able to connect with his son because you know it's he's he, my sister he had the father-daughter thing but you know sometimes the son relationship can be a little strained um and my mom just said listen honey you're you're out there and working all the time and running the business and providing for the family and all of that stuff but you've got to find a way to hang out with your boy because one day you're going to grow up and then you guys aren't going to know each other and I think this is where the 70s parenting moment comes in, where he just, I think, went to his friends and said, you guys, what do I do? I need to find a way to connect with my son. What should I do? You know, and one person said, hey, just take him to this conservation area. 
10 minute drive from where you guys live. Just bring some sunflower seeds and the birds will land on his hand. He's going to love it. And I guess <laughs> nobody, nobody really saw that the monster that it was going to create. Um, that's how I always describe it. It's like, as soon as that little black cap chickadee landed on my hand, a burning monster was created. And from that, you know, from that point, he would, I was obviously too young to be getting anywhere on my own. So he would just take me around all over the place. And we spent a lot of time together. And my father and I have grown very close because of that, uh, because of the birding. We still connect and do that now. And he's uh, just turned 89 years old last summer. And so he's still out there birding whenever whenever I go see him. I love hearing the stories about fathers and sons or fathers, daughters, mother, daughters birding together because it seems to be something you can take on through the rest of your life. Yeah, it's, it's really something. I mean, I was out the other day, just last Sunday, birding, and we got some... Uh, Eastern meadowlarks are back and they're calling and displaying and really crazy stuff going on with those birds right now. And we got some really great views and came across this family of four birding together. And I thought that was just awesome. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that they're out there on a Sunday together when a lot of times, you know, people are not spending time together that way. It was nice to see. So how did you, how did this transfer into your adult life? Well, as I said, I like, I took a little bit of a break from birding, which probably was a little longer even than to 16. Um, it just was, you know, I used to paint birds. And so when I was younger, I had all of this stuff and they got, they did a write up about me in the local newspaper when I was a kid and they called me a bird watcher and that back in, you know, back in the eighties, that was kind of like the social kiss of death, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I was kind of always a bit of a quieter kid and I didn't have like huge number of friends, but uh, I had some good close ones, but that whole bird watching tag, I think had some sort of an effect on my social life. I don't, I can't say for sure. I just know that it got a little quieter. Um, and then as I, so I kind of just, went away from it for a little while because it turned out to be a bit of a negative thing. And then when I came back around to it, it was more like I was in the closet. <laughs> you know, I, I just couldn't stay away from it, but I was burning in the closet. Didn't really tell anybody. And then, you know, I got married. And then very shortly after that, I got divorced. And it was a um, situation where my, my now ex-wife was just met somebody else because I, like I don't even really, I don't really even know why. <laughs> I think she just felt like she needed something more than what we had. Um, but it just, you know, it was a very painful situation for me. The infidelity, the whole thing was just—it was really hard to handle. And I kind of went into a bit of a drinking binge. <laughs> I just was—I still had my job, and I was like—I was what I would call borderline alcoholic, but high functioning. So I still went to work every day and I still did my job. I still did, I was a graphic designer and I still, you know, was relatively successful doing that stuff. But every single night I basically would just drink <laughs> and there was no burning at that time. I just sort of fell out of it again, you know, as, as I was doing that. And then I started to, I met this, this wonderful woman by the name of Rachel Reardon, who is my current wife and mother of my twin children, Shepard and Georgia. And when I turned 30, 
she gave me a book and it was, I still have it. I'm looking at it on my bookshelf right now. It's the, um, it's an Audubon field, not a field guide, but like field notebook. And it's a hard covered book. It's quite large and it's meant to be, you know, take your, take your messy notes out in the field and you come back and you write it properly in this book. And so I started to do that. And, and so I kind of credit Rachel with really getting me back into birding. And when she got me back into it, I like, I dove in deep <laughs> and she was such a, she was such a force in that, even though she herself is not a bird watcher. She's an illustrator and a fine artist, but paints birds all the time, but has no real interest in going out birding. It's not really her thing. Um, but yeah, she, she kind of, she saved me from the drink. I think I just, <laughs> we all need saving, right? Yeah. I think a little bit you do, you know, uh, I was, yeah, I didn't even see my own family for almost two years. I just turned out, I turned off everybody that wasn't my um, co-workers. How long into this was it before you kind of made that challenge with tattoos and birds and you were going to really go after this? Yeah, so I guess it was a couple of years. So once I got really back into birding, I started reading books about birding you know the last bird on earth to see every bird on earth and ken kaufman's uh kingbird highway and so many other books and i started just buying up field guides because i had no children and i had this disposable income that was awesome um and i had to stop drinking so i wasn't spending as much money at bars uh and and so i just took i took this on and then as i was reading one particular story in Kingbird Highway, which I've since had conversations with Ken about because I was curious about it. He's driving, he's hitchhiking from one place to another to see some crows uh, at a dump. <laughs> and this person that's driving him says, well, you don't look like a bird watcher. When, she, you know, when the conversation comes around to the fact that what are you doing going to a dump, you know, on foot with binoculars? Are you some kind of a bird watcher? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a birder. And she started to talk about how weird that was because he didn't look like a bird watcher. Back in those days, Ken was looked like a you know hitchhiking hippie. He had long hair and he was traveling on the road, sometimes apparently eating dry cat food to get by because he did it on with no money. He had dropped out of school to do it. And I I read that, and that was in nineteen. 74, I believe, 73 or 74 when that happened to him. And I kept, it just struck a chord with me because when I'm in, on a shoot or an ad or I'm in an edit suite or a color grading session or in a client meeting, you know, with the CMO of whatever large company I happen to be working for, Subaru or whatever, they everybody would always say to me, you don't look like a birder because of the tattoos and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I thought, wow, from 74 to 2009 and 10, um, people still feel like birders are little old people with pilly hats and whatnot. Right. Yeah. And, and I just thought that is not my version of birding. Now, mind you, I'm always careful to say those birders are out there and they taught me everything I know. Once right. I taught myself somebody that could really teach me, 
they were an older person. I mean, that's just that's just the way it works. Not only in the birding world, world but everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. They're the masters. Yes. Yeah, you have to learn from experience, and if you don't have it, you got to get it from someone who does. So I learned a lot from a few, a couple of people um, in the in the Ontario birding community. Um, one of them was a woman by the name of Margaret Bain, and the other a an author by the name of Richard Pope. Now those two did my big year with me. They were my guides for my big year in 2011, and because I didn't have a lot of money and I had three-year-old twins, <laughs> I had to just confine that to Ontario. I could not do North America. So what I did, though, was because of people still saying that, I thought, I got to do something crazy to make people think birders are not just all little old people. It's not just a retirement thing. It's something you can benefit from as a younger person, too. So I thought, well, I'm going to do a big year. And I'm going to tattoo the Latin name of every fucking bird that I see on my body. And it turned out to be 234 birds, which is respectable, but not crazy good. But I call it respectable with twins. Yes, very respectable. Yeah, it's all right for just Ontario. You know, the magic number for Ontario used to be about 300. But, you know, I got I got as well as I could based on, you know, raising twins and having a full-time job in advertising so you've you had that challenge and, you, and now you're you're doing a lot of stuff you're on the board of the aba you um are starting an apparel company you're working on this documentary what what is your goal in birding right now because it seems like you have bigger ideas of what you want to to help foster into this community yeah i you know i do a lot of stuff um in the, within the birding community I donate a lot of my skill set to the ABA, especially. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm um, a good person to be on the board, because I have that marketing and advertising background. Um, and I've done a lot of nonprofit work throughout my career. So that was, I think that's one really great thing that I feel like I can give back where I might not be able to make some big financial donations. I can certainly donate some time. And the, on the, on the other side of it, the whole reason I did punk rock big year, which was to go out and tattoo all those birds on me that I saw was to just change perceptions. And in the course of doing that, I started going to festivals like the biggest week in American birding, um, the crane festival down in New Mexico, um, stuff like stuff like that. And, and also I went to the one in, um, Oh, what's the one called in oh, shit? I can't remember. It's in, it's in South, South Texas. Oh, uh, Rio Grande. Yeah. So then, you know, at the Rio Grande Festival, all these festivals that you go to, um, the, I always thought, man, I'd like to buy a shirt that says it was here, but not <laughs> that shirt. Right. And not that, like, because I don't, I don't really know why nobody ever thought to try and make them cooler that's for lack of a better word just somewhat stylish the thing that they kind of always did was it it seems to be with um a lot of festivals that they have a festival painting done of a festival bird so they choose whatever that species is and then somebody paints that bird and then they just jam that on a t-shirt but a lot of times the artist that does it is a fine artist they paint 
really beautifully, really, really well. And just about the worst way you can reproduce their quality painting is to screen print it on a shirt. <laughs> like there's those and about ten other bird nerd shirts out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was just I'm just trying to do some stuff a little bit different and just I use it I, I don't even make a ton of money off of it. I honestly just do it to give birders a conversation starter when they're wearing it to a non-birding situation. Kind of all the things you're trying to do are, are for that, just to give another perception of birders. I mean, it makes sense, yeah. you know, uh, from the artistic side to the, the documentary to the challenge that you gave yourself. You know, you're mm -hmm. opening it up. It's, it's something that I've noticed. I was lucky enough to see it about five months in when I was in Miami, and I ran across a group of tattoo birders. And I go, no way. And they were younger than me. And it was like, oh, my God, there's going to be my – my crew, my crew is going to be here somewhere. I'm going to find them. And whenever I come across people that look or act like me, I'm just always so happy and birding. And I think that, you know, what you're doing is letting our people who bird yet realize, Hey, I might be able to do that. It's not going to be just sitting in a room with a lot of people who've been doing it for 60 years. I'm going to meet some other people who are just learning how, just like me. I think that's great great stuff is so needed and you feed off one another too right i mean when you're birding when you find a sort of like a buddy to locally bird with all the time i have one who's a um, i uh, works at mcmaster university here in hamilton and he's a phd and professor and 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 like totally other than birding we might not have had too much in common. Like his musical tastes are a little bit different than mine. He's not, he's, he's more Pink Floyd and I'm more Black Flag, you know, but it, we just, um, we just have a really good time hanging out and, and we're sort of in a similar, um, even as birders, we're, we're in a similar level of knowledge. And at that, I think is really awesome because we work off of one another and we're learning a lot together. I can see us, I can feel us learning more together. And I think that's really, um, I think that's a really neat part of the whole thing. Yeah. I think the connection part of birding is so important. I mean, you know, for me, I have a, I feel like birding saved me and I have this obligation to get back and I can feel that there's that, that need to get back from you as well whether it's just to expose more people to it or whatever. And I see that in a lot of people who are birding. You get so into it, you're like, oh, my God, this is so great for me. This has helped me so much. I want to shout it from the rooftops. You know, come bird. It's so great. You don't know it yet. You'll find out. I just took, you know, four people with me that had never birded before, went to Honduras. They all birded for the first time. Liked it at different levels, but all saw that it was pretty cool. Another thing I want to talk about, because I see it so much in the birding world, so many people that are, deep into birding are really also into music. A lot of them are musicians or singers and some are just into music. And when you and I were talking, we're both punk rockers from back in the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, a lot of our bands. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about the type of music you like, how, how you see that with birding or how you see that when you're connecting with other people, like you were talking about before. Yeah. I guess from a music perspective that what I like, I always, when people say, Hey, what's your favorite kind of music? I, kind of always say all oh, my favorite kind of music is good music uh regardless of whether it's funk or punk or rock or classical like what, whatever it is i just i just like it when it's good now i have this punk bend to, to my preferences though 
like if you look at all the stuff that I keep on my iPod for or on my phone for when I'm flying or doing, you know, being in places where there's no Wi-Fi available or connections, it's mostly heavier punk stuff. And I think sometimes people kind of wonder, well, how does that fit with birding? Because birding is this time in nature, it's quiet, it's all this kind of stuff. And punk is seems like it's the antithesis of that. And I would say to that, I would just say, I think that, um, I think a lot of punks uh, are really interesting people in that, you know, what the stuff that I was mo that I loved the most was kind of like that DC hardcore scene, you know, Ian MacKay and, and all that kind of stuff, Minor Threat and all these things, Dead Kennedys, all that kind of stuff. These are people that are observers. They are in a world where things are happening all around them and they are taking that stuff in and then they're shoving it back out with through their lens. So if you look at a lot of the lyrics to those songs, you know, like it's not fluff. People think it's all kill your mother, kill your father, kill your sister crap. And although some of those songs exist, I just think that they are observers and birders are observers and they are a subculture and birding is a subculture. And when you put those things together, you get this like subculture of a subculture, which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, man, it is interesting. It's, it's, it fascinates me that the birders are so into me, even when they're playing guitars and stuff at these festivals and just, or they're singing songs and these different things that they're doing. I'm just like, wow, I just never expected that. That was, you know, surprising to me. It's like an outlet. Maybe, maybe it also has to do, you have to be, you're so quiet when you're out birding that you, want to turn it up a notch when you get away from it. So I'm trying to bring that, you know, when I'm talking to different people on this podcast, talk to them a little bit about music, but there's a, another common thread that runs through is food. And I'm, you know, being a chef, I'm so surprised at how many people are, you know, the dreaded word that I hate so much, but quote unquote foodies, but they just love and have this passion for food. It seems like almost every one of them I meet secretly wants to be a chef somehow. And I didn't really talk to you about food, but what's your connection with it? My connection with food is runs really deep. When we were young, um, back even probably I would say even before I started birding, um, we were we were a family that were you know middle class, um, average middle class Canadian family living in a small suburban neighborhood, um, and my mom worked. And my dad worked, you know, like once I got to a certain age, my mom went back to work. And so there was a kind of a rule in our house that she didn't have to cook every night. Now, she probably did most of the cleaning, although my dad is German and likes things to be neat. So he probably helped out there a little bit, but it was more of a, it was more of a need than a desire probably. Um, but yeah, like, so once a week I had to cook dinner and when I first started it, I guess it was probably frozen pizzas and whatnot. But, you know, my I was responsible for cooking one night, my sister one night, my dad really liked to cook. So he would cook as well as my mom. So we came up, I came up in a cooking family. And, you know, my dad always said to me, 
you should know how to cook and you should know how to cook well because you will be a happier person down the road because your mom's not always going to be here to make your food. Someday you're going to be on your own and you're not going to want to eat shit. So <laughs> you'll be healthier and you'll be happier if you learn how to cook. Nice. So I'm going to end this with like a three-part question. What's the last bird you saw, the last band you listened to, and the last meal you cooked? Uh, the last bird that I saw was, I don't want to count, I don't want to count the starling out front this morning, but technically it was a European starling. But the last bird that I actively looked at was, um, I would say I caught a glimpse of a gold, what I think was a golden eagle the other day. So that's a lot, that's a lot sexier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> we'll get John to edit out the starling. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I did. You know what? I did have a really excellent experience with the best experience I've ever had with those uh, eastern meadowlarks. The other day, this one was just kept on walking in and out of the grass on top of a berm around a um, around a little river, and he just would show up and he'd sing a few times, and then he would turn his back and literally disappear into the grass like one step and you couldn't see them anymore i, I love them so amazing. much they're so hard to photograph though down in the grass and the leaf gets in there and blurs out my shot i've always loved the the metal art since i've seen them how about band what's the last band you listened to uh the last band i listened to i was actually listening to uh waiting room by fugazi before you guys oh started. i was getting ready to say that, <laughs> that early was, uh, that was what tom wanted to be the theme song <laughs> to his very first podcast um <laughs> That's, yeah. that's like my theme song through life is waiting room man it's huge for me i cannot listen to that song and not bounce my head up and down i can i'm picturing myself jumping around yeah, that, that baseline is, is legendary man I, it's so funky i usually play oh, pavements boxcar right after it too that's the other part of my theme song duo songs that's great i love i love, I love hearing that you just listen to that and what's the last yeah. meal you cook uh, the last meal I cooked, well, I guess technically today I made a chili. It's still on the stove cooking right now. Gonna gonna watch a movie with the kids and eat bowls of chili a little later. Nice, very respectable. Yeah, very respectable. Yeah. <laughs> I give you, you know, you did pretty good there, man. I, I like that. You see the gold needle with gold eagle with the metal larks, uh, Fugazi waiting room, and then a big bowl of chili. Being from Texas, man, I'll give you a hoo-ah. <laughs> that's awesome yeah it was, it was a, uh, hopefully it'll taste good I mean <laughs> I mean, my wife's can, a better chili maker than me uh, you know we soak a bunch of cheese on it and Fritos and it's awesome yeah hey well thanks for joining us today man I really appreciate you taking the time out to share your story and hear a little bit more about you uh, oh you know, well thanks very much hopefully we'll be able to hook up at one of these festivals once they start opening back up again yeah I have a I have a strong feeling that the biggest week in American birding will not happen this year yeah, I have this whole plan on having a Airstream base camp, turning it into a studio and going down there and collecting a lot of stories. Yeah, well, that could, that could still, you know what? Uh, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, it all depends on so many things that are out of our control, but there's other festivals. You would do well at at other ones too, like Rio Grande in November. And, and they said they're going to wait till April 9th to make their decision on that, so who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. All right, Paul. Well, thanks again so much for calling in. I appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, man. We'll catch up later. Take care. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye.
All right, Paul, you still there, bro? I am. Yeah, I figured it wasn't a hang up. Yeah, man. Nice, nice. (laughs) 